You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. This is Doug Thorpe, and it's a pleasure to be back with you again today. In my experience, the business world gets locked in on some buzzwords every now and then that kind of have their own life for, I don't know, six, eight, ten years. And with the pandemic and everything we've been through, one of those words now that is on the top of everybody's short list of key themes is the word resilience. I've heard it probably at every stop on the corporate trail that I've been on in the last couple of years, and it continues to be a challenge, and as words go, it has different meanings to different people. So today, we're going to try to focus on the idea of your own resilience as a leader and how you can leverage resilience to help your organization. My guest is Dr. Watson Jordan. Watson, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, it's nice to have resilience getting uh, some attention. Excellent. As is somewhat custom on the show, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background and the journey you've been on to get to where you are uh, today? Sure. Well, I uh, am a lifelong educator. I worked uh, primarily in the boarding school space. So I worked at a school. I went to a boarding school. Uh, I worked at a boarding school first as the director of technology, and then after 9-11, I was that and the director of uh, crisis management, safety, security, and crisis management. So I was there for about 13 years and then shifted from working at a school to working with schools, and I worked very closely with the Association of Boarding Schools. And I built out their sponsorship program and along the way uh, launched a number of financial products. And one of the things that happened is we had, uh, I'm married, we uh, have had three children and our youngest son, William, died. And he died about 23 years ago this month. Um, and in the wake of that, and this is often the case, but it, it leads to my work in resilience. Uh, about four years ago, I wrote a book called Mine, Ours, and Yours about uh, our life with our son, William, and our life following his, his death. And I was really, uh, I think most of your listeners, I'm sure you have, sometimes you have a project that's within you. And truthfully, it is just easier to do it than to keep not doing it. So this was, <laughs> um, this book was like that. And so simultaneously, when the book was being written, I had a number of projects that had kind of gone full cycle, and I still had a role that it was a more passive role. Our kids were just about out of college. And I went, you know, I'm going to work on something that's dear to my heart and not try to get a job to make X amount of money right this second. I want to see where this will go. Well, I worked with Diana Wu David 
out of Hong Kong and she has a future proof group. I was in the initial cohort and in my work with her, I'd started volunteering in town with various places. And my joke has always been, if you'd looked at my desk, you would have gone, man, that is a mess. Well, with, with Diana's help, she looked at the various places where I was investing energy with youth in Asheville, with a number of different places. And she said, you know, they seem to really have something to do with resilience. And per your introduction, at that moment, something snapped in my head and I went, that's it. And I went, oh, it's the Resilience Initiative. Because I, I love working, but I don't want it to be the Resilience Lifetime. An initiative is, you know, not for infinity. And I had a fantastic executive writer series. I had a video series that turned into a podcast. I ended up writing a second book. I currently uh, do coaching and training and facilitating of groups. But it was at that point, having written the book, which a key element of it is most of us will have something happen that we didn't want to happen. Often it is a tragic thing. And that really is a chance to take a good look at ourselves. You know, how do we respond to that? Because there's a time for significant grief. And then there's a time for moving forward it to the next meaningful part of our life. And for me, that was, I wrote the book and then started the Resilience Initiative. And I like to say we promote resilience around the world. So that. Uh, well, I, I agree with you, Watson, you know, so many of us, and it's true for me personally and true for many of the executives and the business owners I deal with. There's something in their life story that was a, a moment of change, a moment of both reflection and serious assessment of the direction they're going. And uh, you're right. A lot of times it Unfortunately, it seems to have to deal with some kind of tragedy, some loss or something, but it doesn't always have to be that. It, it, it can just be a major obvious roadblock in, in the path that you thought you were on, and now there's no choice but to make a detour or turn around or turn 90 degrees and go another direction. So... Um, uh, let's let's maybe just start with some of the underpinnings as as you begin talking with people about this whole idea of the resilience initiative. What's typically at the core of the discussion you have in the in the first round? You know, we talk to people. It's often a, a sequence like this. Well, as we know, we know many people who are unfulfilled who want to move towards being their best self. You hear a lot of people now say words like burned out, uh, confused. And those people want to be fulfilled. They want to be living their ideal life. They'd like to know why they do what they do. They'd like to be resilient. But it's a real challenge in the world where 
there's so much information, it's hard to start. And there's so many, there are many voices and there are kind of a thousand different ways and it can be confusing. Plus, we're at a very strange time in the history of the world, the pandemic having just ended. So, but they need a first step. We need kind of a first step to fortify our resilience. So I help people with that first step. I help them identify why they do what they do. And we have a very straightforward plan about identifying where your life is already resilient and just thinking of that as a foundation. You know, so we talk about it's a, I work with the Why Institute. So the answer to the question, why do you do what you do? I'm able to answer using their algorithm. This, the second, third, and fourth steps are part of our 531 plan. And it's very straightforward because I'm not looking to fortify resilience like Ernest Shackleton so that someone's going to be on the cover of Time magazine or they'll write books about the fame of whoever this person is. What I'm really fascinated by and motivated to do is all of us want to have a resilient life. And it, for me, it comes down to three elements, and that's the 531 plan. And the five is just who are the five people in your inner circle? And I heard this from a guy named Jim Rome, but he said, you better know who the five people are that you're closest to. And if you don't like them, you need to change them. Because that, <laughs> yeah, because that's a really impactful group, <clears throat> and I talk a lot and encourage. So the worst inner circle in the world is five of me. You know, if, if my inner circle is five of me, that's not very insightful. So I, I kind of go, wouldn't I love for my inner circle to have some real variety in terms of anything you want in terms of gender, I think is the easiest one to make sure that, you know, do I, do I have a woman who I'm friends with, who can, that I share things with, but I mean, my best friend, Frank, you know, but knowing who those five people are, literally identifying them and going, wow. I, and then leaning on them and being leaned on by them. So five people in my inner circle. And then I really believe in community. And I think a powerful lesson of the pandemic is how critical communities are for human beings, because we went to very suddenly being very isolated. And it was down to if you lived with someone, and any virtual connections you have. So again, uh, I think variety is a powerful ally. So my example is, if I belong to five bowling leagues and they're all with the same people at the same league doing the same thing, that's a good community, but a rich life with community in it maybe has a bowling league maybe has some type of spiritual community. 
Um, and I, I, so I go to yoga is a great community for me. I belong to this great online community called Kinzai, and it's a fitness community that a former student started. So for me, that's, you know, a stable chair or stool has three legs, you know, but having those communities that I invest in and harvest from. So you have an online community that you lead. So that would not count as one of the communities you participate in because leading a community is a very different activity than participating in. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's very valuable, but it, but being, I need to be in a community where I show up and bowl or I show up and go to yoga and I leave my car in the phone and I get there on time and I leave on time and so, but that type of participation, I think the pandemic, if it showed us anything, it's how powerful that is for us as people, just yeah. to feel engaged, yeah. feel part of. Um, and then the last one is, it's it's good to know what your core belief is. And I kind of go, yeah, it can be anything. It doesn't even have to be profound, but believing something again is very is a powerful thing to know so we have a workbook and uh not complicated ideas i was going to interject on that that idea about the, the the need for community in the in the face of the pandemic um i tell the story now in retrospect my wife and i had the good fortune right just prior to the start of the pandemic so this would have been 2019 through a series of events, she and I got really close to another couple that happened to go to our church, and we had done a lot of church community-related things together. So we were uh, we were not yet friends, but we were you know good acquaintances. But we began exploring the possibility that we really wanted to be friends, roughly the same age, roughly the same yep. condition in life. Um, and we started exploring that and then boom, the, you know, the shutdown from the pandemic happened. Well, the first thing we did, and there's a little bit of a side story to this, this couple happens to be a retired doctor and a retired nurse. So they were kind of tuned into the medical aspects of everything <laughs> that was going on and avid voracious readers of all the information that was swirling and uh, the confusion that went with the early days of the pandemic. And very long story short, the four of us made a pledge to each other. We were going to bubble together at, mm. during the pandemic. We we felt we had enough control over our outside activities that we could come together as a foursome with confidence of not impairing each other's health or, or not adversely impacting our health. So what did that mean? Well, it meant, no, we didn't go out to restaurants, but we went to each other's houses to have dinner and, you know, we would cook and enjoy time as we prepared the meals and such. Did a lot of binge watching of TV shows together and things like that, as, as many were doing. But it grew this incredible bond. And actually, my wife and I talk about it, and I'm not ashamed to say it publicly, and they, they have become the, the best friends we've ever had. And some would call it station in life and some would call it other things, but the bottom line is it happened 
And now we have this very small little community that we heavily rely on uh, to encourage each other and help each other as we move on with new challenges and phases in our lives. So, um, you know, in retrospect, it was definitely a, a huge blessing and it didn't hurt that I had a ringside seat to the medical truth of yeah. what was really going on. And so I, there was a little bit of comfort and assurance I got from that. I didn't have to live the, the fear and speculation that probably the majority of people in the world did understanding what COVID was about. The other thing I go back to is the, uh, the five that you mentioned Right. And what, what I heard you describing in those key five people in your life, it it's more than simply having mentors or accountability partners. So could you kind of elaborate a little more on the significance of the five? Sure. I, you know, and I think, well, first, um, about your friendship that emerged, you know, friendship is really valuable and easy to take for granted. And I always think kind of significant friendships either occur over a very long arc of time. Like I've been going to breakfast with my best friend, Frank, for 25 years. So that's a lot of sorting it out every day. In fact, he listened to all of the pieces that became my first book over years at breakfast. Um, or it's really kind of a crisis-oriented foxhole where it's a very significant kind of moment in time. And that pressure, um, if you're fortunate, forms something really valuable. So, you know, how that is a real blessing. That, and good for y'all for seeing the blessing that was there, you know, and capturing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, in, you know, to your point of your breakfast partner, I, I have a similar situation. There's a, a <laughs> fellow that I've known for over 30 years. We actually worked together in our early career in banking, and then we stayed friends and now have a weekly breakfast that we get together. And um, at the end of the pandemic, he and I collaborated and wrote a book. It was ended up, I think it was technically his third book, my fifth, but we, it was a joint project that we did decided to do together that um, came out of that. And uh, you know, but having that thread as well, and you know, we, we, we call ourselves accountability partners. You know, we have these discussions like, you know, I'm dealing with such and such. What do you think I ought to do? How do you, how would you do it? And okay, that's what I'm going to do. Hold me accountable to that. You know, challenge me of whether or not I do that thing that I say I'm going to do. Yeah. I think the, the five people there, it can come in lots of different shapes and forms. So I think, um, I think it's difficult for it to be effective or beneficial if the five people change constantly. So things can change, but I think if we think of things in, in terms of quarters or years, those are kind of time frames where that inner circle would be, have some consistency. Um, a, so I think it can't be a revolving door. Right unless you're really upgrading and then you kind of know I'm starting fresh. 
it's smart to learn the value of not being rash and overreacting. So an example, I had something happen a couple of weeks ago and I went, okay, it involved kind of attorneys and things. So I went, well, I need to sit with this and then I need to walk through it with one of the five people in my inner circle and then respond. Just talking through things, it's so valuable to just get that pause that refreshes, you know, just that. And if they are friends, then they've known me for a chunk of time and they have some context for whatever it is. And, you know, and that can be a business thing, certainly kind of the, the business leaders that you work with and speak to. If, if you're in business, something happens. I think yeah, the most yeah. common thing in the world is the dangers of success. Because when things start going well, that again, kind of Jim Rome used to talk about, you know, the seasons of life. And he kind of goes, yeah. And if you do a great job planting and you have a good harvest going, you got to protect it because things will come along to take it away. You know, whether that's locusts or kind of rabbit or whatever you want to fill that in with. But that's a part of success is dealing with things that bubble up. In most cases, it's reciprocal because yeah. I think I think a mentor is a great thing to have, but it's not necessarily, or I think it's rare that that's kind of an inner circle person. Yes, I would agree with you. Uh, it can happen, but just, agree. and if you have more than, uh, so my friend Frank, I've met with more consistently than anyone. But if you have more people that you can talk with, it's that adds some real value. And again, I kind of go, what's another? I like to have someone younger. So I turned, I'll turn 60 this year, which is a great age to be. But there's a lot of perspective that someone who's 30 might have that I wouldn't. And that's really valuable. And again, that's a nice, I would also say for anyone who's 30, if they can be friends and close to someone who's 60, then that's a valuable perspective as well. Yeah, I agree. Get, getting that varying lens of, of current affairs and current ideas that are going on. Um, we're going to need to take a break here, Watson, and, and uh, drop in a little commercial message. But I, I want to lean into this whole idea of the why. I, I want to go back to that when we uh, return from the break. And so, folks, I'm going to ask you to hang on with us. We're going to have this short message. And when we come back, we're going to dig some more into that why part of this resilience initiative. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness, too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. Well, hello again, everyone. We're back. You are listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and my guest today is Dr. Watson Jordan. We've been talking about this 
enterprise that he's got called the Resilience Initiative. But at the start of the show, we did mention the magic why. And uh, Watson, um, I, I, we were talking in the green room during the break here about that element of why. And as most of my listeners know, I'm a big advocate of helping people visit and do an exercise to try to determine their sense of purpose. And yes, some would call it finding the why. I've seen it happen too many times when someone comes to me and professes that they seem stuck in their business or their career or their life. We start looking at the whole idea of the why or the sense of purpose they may have. And inevitably they've either lost the vision of that or in some cases, they've never done the work to figure that out. They just grew up and got busy and found a job and started having a life and never really had any underlying drivers that were directing their effort. And when that happens, inevitably, you wake up one day and go, is this worth it? What, what am I doing? Where am I? So, Watson, talk a little bit about your use of the the why in helping people with this whole uh, idea. Happy to. And I'll start with uh, the example you gave, which I think is, is right on target. I do an annual review and planning in December. And every year I would be going along and would go, well, what's your big why? And I would look at that and I felt like I knew deep in my soul and I would get ready to write it down or to tell you, and nothing would come out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I would get frustrated, and I would go, well, my why is to get a red bike. And then I would tell you exactly how I was going to get a red bike, which is fine. But that's a goal. That's a goal where you can reverse engineer and get that event to happen. But it doesn't answer the question, why do I do what I do? So... I had had that experience, you know, every, <laughs> every year I'd go red bike. You know, I just, I couldn't, I mean, and I, I was not in the dark on doing the work or knowing kind of some of the things that motivated me, but the absence of language really was a barrier. And a friend of mine said, Hey, I've been talking with the Y Institute. I think you'd like them. So one of those great moments of action, I said, okay. And I found out the person I should talk with who's now my close friend, Dan Dominguez. And I reached out to him and he walked me through the Y Institute's approach to this, which is they have an algorithm. And so you take the algorithm and it goes back to kind of, Simon Sinek is really the godfather of the why universe. And so he started with, well, what's your why and your how and your what? So Gary, who founded the Why Institute, worked with Simon for almost a year and figured it out. And he went, that is too hard. We have, <laughs> this is an important answer. We need to help people get this answer so that they can get moving. So they have over time constructed an algorithm and they have a very powerful system of nine whys. They're, 
They're nine. Gary worked with, he was a dentist. He worked with people for years and he would ask them this question, you know, when was a time that was remarkably fulfilling for you where you felt like all of your power and your resources and your capability was drawn and you got to apply it and it was successful. You know, that moment of kind of being in your zone of genius. And so he started recording all their answers. And after a couple of years, he said, well, there are only nine answers. Different, you know, you're wearing different shoes, you're, but, but there are nine answers. So I have found that to be a powerful first step for anyone who wants to build their ideal life, who wants to be fulfilled. And often we get so, there are lots of great assessments. There are, and they can provide, but the why is the a why operating system and it's really a discovery. And it's the first step, it's kind of the cornerstone for answering those questions, you kind of go. So I'm a, one of them is a better way. So I like to find a better way and to share it. Yeah. <clears throat> I look back at my life and I go 100% of the time when I was really having a rich, fulfilling experience that was going on. So I'm kind of a natural innovator, but it's a powerful cornerstone. And with your why and your how and your what, they kind of all nest together to make this zone of genius. Mm -hmm. And it works beautifully with other, well, it works beautifully with assessments. So it's a discovery. It is set in place. And then whatever assessment you take, if it's strength finders or Colby, or there are many, and there are many very good ones, right. but they fit on top of that. And I've, it's never happened that it displaced something for someone that was valuable, but it really provided a framework to for self-understanding that was very liberating and in many cases directional. I, I kind of backed into that finding uh, in, in a very circuitous way in uh, 2008 when we had the last big financial crisis in America, you know, and unemployment rates went into double digits everywhere. I was working with a nonprofit that I created to help job seekers, help people find new opportunities in a bad market. And at first, the vision for the organization was just to do the heavy blocking and tackling, you know, well, we're going to coach people on doing interviews and how to write a good resume and all of that. But it was no time that I realized people that were coming to our doorstep wanting help had really lost their way for, for men who had lost their jobs, their identities were stripped. They, they could not tell you who and what they were. The women were very insecure because of, um, well, insecurity was the issue because of the loss of financial resource. So there was this fear and trepidation for the women. So we quickly did our own assessment and we realized there was power in asking people to start listing life experiences that they had had. And we called them accomplishments, you know, name a project or an event or a circumstance that was an accomplishment that you could claim 
don't worry about the job title or the, the stop on your resume. You know, don't think of it that way, but just list the thing. And as people started revealing these moments in their lives, patterns started to emerge. And it was like, well, one, seven, nine, and 12 on my list. When I was doing that, I was fulfilled. I was energized. I was excited. I was motivated. But everything else, I, I was thankful I got it done. I got paid handsomely for it, but it didn't mean anything to me. Mm, so yep. we, we started getting them to shape those stories into the direction they needed to be going. And then and only then would we release them to start writing a resume and filling out job applications and surveys and things for, about finding jobs. We had people that made 180 degree detours in their career path after doing that work. And, you know, they, they left oil and gas and went to hospitality or left hospitality to go to some kind of arts Institute or, you know, it just, it, it was very, very compelling. The life changes that came from that as people started focusing on that sense of purpose and ultimately the why it's, you know, when you mentioned that, we, I love doing team events. So whether it's with an executive team at a school or a sports team or any group that does things together. And I was doing one in uh, late July at a school and the process, and it was a small enough number of people where we did everything together. Mm -hmm. If you have 20 people, you really need to break into groups so that it doesn't take all day unless that's really important for the. But as we went around and I'd had them think about this moment where they were most fulfilled. They really, and it's thanks to um, the head of school, a guy named Ray Quinnell, because if the leader isn't willing to invest in this process, it's hard for other people to, to go any deeper in the water than she or he will go. Well, I mean, there were tears of sadness and joy. I mean, it was very powerful and emotional. And it really provided them as a team. And they are a mature team. So they had worked together for many years. They knew each other in new ways, and I would say in more significant ways than they ever had because of that team event. And it was kind of going, well, I, I never knew that. Because so often we do get to know people incrementally and events happen that are revealing, but it was very powerful. And I think they, uh, they look back on our work this summer as they're going through this year. And it was a very powerful experience where I think they felt closer and more united. And you work with people who lead organizations and companies. And that feeling of if everyone belongs, if everyone knows they're kind of valued and wanted and cared for and are necessary for the big events, the big goals to happen for the organization. That's, that's a powerful organization that has that going on. And it, people talk about that in terms of culture now. Yeah. And I think that's, right. 
I mean, I, I bet everyone who's listening to this has had moments where they were part of an organization where they felt that way. Mm-hmm. And they weren't. My daughter just started working for the Cleveland Browns a few months ago, and she's a video producer. And she said, you know, today I went out and they knew who I was. And I, <laughs> I said, that had to feel great because when someone's new, it's just someone new. But there's a point where you're a known part of the team. So yeah. she, we talked about, but that's a very, that's a great feeling of kind it of. Is. Yeah. You know, and speaking of organizational impact and, and being part of a team, when we were in the green room during the break, we touched on this idea of um, get the right people on the bus. Uh, you know, that's uh, from Jim Collins' work. But uh, you you had a thought about that. I'm going to ask you to share that with everybody. Yeah, I, it's such an easy uh, example, the right people on the right bus. But I've always felt like having the right people in the band is a much richer, funner example. So different bands sound differently. Uh, at colleges and universities, they often for admission use an orchestra. They kind of go, we want all these instruments, you know, and we need to have an oboe player, you know, but we don't need 86 oboe players, you know. So that type of, and pr- putting something together to produce something, beautiful music in this case, I think is really a, a great example where different organizations or different types of bands, you know, and I would go, at a school, the leadership team really needs to have a lot of variety because the leadership team needs to be reflective of the students. So you want there always to be a somebody who a student can relate to. And if, if everybody, what would be horrible? If everybody on the executive team was me, that would be a really narrow band that all of the students there could connect with, but right. it's a much more powerful. Right. Um, so, but I love that idea. And I, I do some work with LinkedIn and it's a sales team. So that's a really, that's a different type of team because they do the same activity. So right. you kind of go, well, you might have, think of that like, uh, a chorus where everyone's singing, but they're different. You know, there's a bass and a tenor and a soprano, and but everyone's singing. You know, they're not. You want people who are good at sales. If you have a sales team, yeah, there, there can be some variety, but you want people who are effective at sales. And part of that, in my world, is really being true to who you are. Yeah. Um, you know, it as you mentioned, the band. I'm uh, really top of mind for me. Uh, again, I, I alluded to the, these friends my wife and I have. The four of us. Uh, just in the last month or so, we've had an opportunity. There have been two touring bands come through our area. One was Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the other one was the Beach Boys, of all people. Well. When you hear those names, you go, oh, yes, but then you, you have to read the fine print <laughs> because uh, in the case of Earth, Wind, and Fire, of course, they've been around for 50 years, 
And they, in the current tour, they actually have three of the original members, but you know, those guys are in their seventies now. So you, you question what kind of performers are they going to be? But two things come to come to the front. One is, can they still do their part in, in whether it's voice or, or instrument? And in the case of Earth, Wind, and Fire, all three of them knocked it out of the park. I mean, they've still got it. They move a little slower, but boy, they can sing, they can play, all of that. But the second part that's critical is for the holes in the band that they don't have, they've gone out and found some talent that does exceptionally well emulating the sound. So you, you still get the full band impact as though it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they were cutting records. Same thing was true with the beach boys. And I don't want to get too far off our topic here, but the Beach Boys story is a different one. It's a very complex story. You know, the Wilson yeah. brothers that were the founders, there's there's a lot of tragedy in that story. And there's now one of the original members, Mike Love, actually owns the rights to everything. And how all that happened, I, I don't know. But Mike and his band were the ones we saw. And Mike still sings his part very well. The, the other guy does his part very well, plays keyboard but the assembly of musicians that they've brought in to make the sound is just, you close your eyes and you know, you're there. I mean, you're in, it's 1966 all over again. And uh, they've done a phenomenal job of, of piecing that together. So that's off to them because that's, they as a band were driven by great harmonies. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it wasn't a ton of different instruments. It was literally vocal harmony. Five part, a five part harmony is what they had going on. Wow, and, that's... Yeah. And they've done it. Yeah. Uh, my club's son is one of the band members. He's a guitar player and a, and a very good singer. So he, he's one of the voices that joined in and, and uh, helped recreate everything. But uh, it was a phenomenal experience. And then I, the other night I was just browsing YouTube and I found a version of the other touring group that still has Brian Wilson and um, Al Jardine in it. And I'm sad to say they're not anywhere close to what Mike Love's group does now. And so um, if you're going to go buy Beach Boys tickets, pay attention to who's showing up for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Read the fine print. Yeah. Get the, well, and you know, get that's the right five. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But know who's in your top five. Exactly. But, but I, I, I beat that metaphor to death, but I think it speaks volumes to the whole idea of when you're creating a team, find the right people to be in the band. That's, yeah. that's the, uh, so I love your word about that. Yeah. And we find that the, um, the, the framework from the Y Institute, the nine Y's is a very, it's, because it's fast, it's insightful, it's fun, and it's immediately actionable. But you get a different look at kind of who's on your team. And when there's a vacancy, you can use that to easily go, well, who do we wish, what instrument do we wish was there? And it's easy to find out what different applicants look like, but to use it as a it's always insightful 
But when you're building a team, it gives you a chance to be a little bit more deliberate yeah. Yeah. about. Uh, so if I use myself as an example, I just can't, I'm an innovator. I just can't help myself. And there are plenty of places where that's really valuable. It's not always awesome because you keep monkeying with things all the time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that there are times where that's valuable and there are times where it's, it's not. So if there's a chair that wants reliable, predictable results over time, I'm not the right person. I'm not the best person to be in that chair. And that's just handy to know because this, you know, it's not like, this isn't like changing the color shoes you wear. You know, this yeah. is a hardwired, it's who people are. Yeah, yeah. Well, Watson, I appreciate your insight and in coming and joining us today. We're going to have to kind of wrap this up. Tell people the best way uh, you have for getting in touch if they're interested in learning more about the Resilience Initiative. I'm very active on LinkedIn. and But my website is, which is hashtag resilience.com. That's all one word. There are easy places to get on my calendar or to register to work with me to discover your why or to find out about uh, team events. That's so, great. Yep. Those two, that's the best way. Well, we will have all that information in the show notes. If you were catching it on the fly, if you've got your ear pods in and out on a jog or a, a dog walk or out in the car, but uh, uh, hop over there to the show notes, you'll get all that information and learn more about what uh, Watson and his team have going on. Uh, one last time, thank you so much for sharing with us. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody enjoy the day. Yeah. Well, folks, I, I do want to remind you again, if you're listening, we do have a video version of this over on YouTube channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, subscribe to the channel, leave us a comment. I'm always interested in, in getting your feedback, getting your uh, opinion about what's going down and what we've had here. I uh, have an open invitation if you would like to be a guest or think you know someone that would be a good guest to get on the mic, let me know. We are uh, always opening. We are rapidly finalizing the 2022 uh, broadcast schedule, and our next slots coming up soon will be out in 2023. But um, nonetheless, if you're a candidate for that, let me know, and we would love to get you in uh, into the studio, so to speak, the virtual studio here, and uh, get you on air. So for now, we're going to shut it down, say goodbye, and wish you a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.